Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here in Wiltshire. It's a beautiful, autumnal, sunny day. Hello from Richard Heller in south-east London. What he said about the weather. And we have a very high-powered, coherent guest. Perhaps you should introduce him, Richard. You've written a great note about all the campaigning he's done and the issues raised, which is superb. I recommend it. Well, thank you very much. I wouldn't like to think that our other guests have been incoherent, but certainly our guest today is unusually coherent. He is one of Britain's leading campaigners for the preservation of first-class cricket through the county system in England. He's also become a campaigner for democracy in English cricket. Uh, We'll ask him to say more about this very, very soon. But first of all, a very warm welcome to Alan Hyam. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Richard, and thank you, Peter, for having me on. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm speaking to you from a sunny part of the country, too. I'm down in Surrey, although I I regard myself as a bit of an expatriate Lancastrian. You know, that's that's my roots. I was born and bred in Lancashire, um, moved down to London many years ago for work, and have raised a family here. So I have, I guess, split loyalties. I'm a member at Surrey and at Hampshire as well. But my roots, my bone marrow really is, is in Lancashire, and that's, I guess, where my uh, heart will always lie. Well, um, perhaps we'll say more about that. It gives you a very deep grounding in, in county cricket. Before we start our conversation with Alan, I just want to follow up on one um, detail from Said Ahmed's encounter with Her Majesty the Queen, which we um, narrated last time uh, when we met um, uh, Simon Heffer. Said met the Queen in 1967, but he also met her again uh, on tour with Pakistan in 1971. And uh, presented, the team's, team was presented to her at Lords in the usual way. Um, and this concerns our great friend um, Aftab Ghul, the Pakistan's opener in 1971. It was a very, um, was then and still is, a very um, independent and radical character. And um, after being presented to the Queen, he stepped forward and said um, to the Queen, when are we going to meet again? (laughs) The Queen didn't say anything, but she just smiled and moved on. And shock horror among the courtiers and um, officials. But um, that very evening, the entire Pakistan team got invited to meet her again, all over again at Buckingham Palace. So another tribute to the Queen and um, another example of the Queen overriding protocol in the interests of, um, of friendship. Just to remind everyone that when uh, she met Saida Ahmed, he said, what, what, do you th- what, what do you think of when you think of Pakistan? And she said, cricket and horses. <laughs> Alan, um, over to you now. You are, as we say, a very leading campaigner in the world of cricket. Would you like to say a little bit more about yourself and the organisations you've worked with as a campaigner and what you're doing now? Yes, well, my, you know, I'm a lifelong cricket fan, really. I've mentioned my love for Lancashire and other counties. I've also watched an awful lot of English test cricket, both at home and around the world. I was counting up. I think I've probably been to over 50 different test match venues watching and play cricket. So... 
whilst I don't pretend to have any great cricket skills um, uh, as a player, I have watched an awful lot of cricket and experienced it for life as a, a paying spectator. And I've often felt that the cricket authorities are a little too remote and detached from life as a cricket spectator. Um, I first wrote to Michael Atherton um, about 10, 15 years ago with some thoughts which he was kind enough to actually turn into a full feature piece which examined the role of how cr cricket grounds treat spectators. That, that led to a few introductions to other senior people in cricket, um, Rod Bransgrove at Hampshire which later led to me becoming a member there, um, as people responded constructively to a degree with it. But I, I, I always felt that cricket is effectively a made-for-TV show, that the focus is really on TV broadcasting money, and not enough attention is paid to the needs of the paying spectator or their feelings or how they're engaged with cricket. Um, so with that background in mind, I was asked about four years ago when I sort of stood away from my professional career as, a, as an actuary, to get involved with the Cricket Supporters Association. And I took a role on the board there, and I was particularly involved in setting up and establishing contacts at each county amongst cricket supporters, people who knew and understood what was going on at local level at each county. And so we could bring things together to get a, a truly broad and diverse national perspective of the cricket supporters view. So it was with that in mind I'm knowing about the high performance review and what was likely to come out of it. You know, the, the plans were very well trailed and publicized in the media. And I don't think that was an accident. I think that was a deliberate wanting to position the key reforms to get people used to what the headlines were going to be because the headlines were challenging. And it was with that in mind that myself and a number of the other county reps from within the Cricket Sports Association, we decided we would need to do something about this. So we started to ask questions early in the year at the AGMs in the spring, late winter, each county were being asked by their members, what's going on here? How are you going to involve us? And will you make sure that we have a strong say before you vote on anything? So we've been starting to ask these questions all the way through the year and it's built up to this summer where we weren't getting very many answers other than the county chiefs were saying well it's all media speculation there's nothing we can say at the moment of course if there's anything to consult you on we will consult you but let's just wait and see what happens and we knew that by the time everybody was certain what was going to happen. It would be about five minutes before the actual votes would take place. It would be far too late to mobilize any cricket supporters, any members to give their views. And we all remember what happened with the 100. The 100 was brought in with virtually no consultation at all with members of cricket clubs. And indeed the ECB railroaded the county chiefs into voting on it at a meeting where it seems they'd already predetermined the outcome anyway. So we were keen to learn from the bad experience about how the 100 was brought in to make sure this time county members were ready to ask these questions and if necessary, apply pressure under the rules of the counties to force county chiefs to give members a say. I must say, sort of, until I sort of looked into your your record, Alan, and your campaigning activity, 
I must say, I was shocked to see how little consultation there had been among among counties. I'd sort of rather naively thought that counties were were members' organisations, that they were, you know, under the control of their members on key decisions. And it appears that appears to be very much the exception rather than the rule, isn't it? Yes. Well, fifteen of the eighteen counties are member-owned mutual societies. They are effectively cooperatives. They're meant to be run for social good. Each year. The counties, these 15 counties, have to file an annual return to the Financial Conduct Authority, the government body that effectively regulates them. And in it, they have to state what their social purpose is and how they meet this. Um, so they're not charities, but they're not PLCs either. You know, cricket needs money to exist, but it doesn't exist to make money. That's not what these vehicles are. And the central purpose in most of these member-owned cricket clubs is to play county cricket and to provide high quality players for England. And over the last 10 years, an awful lot of the counties have become more detached from their membership in terms of how they are governed in much the same way that the ECB has become very detached from the counties. So the ECB have, if you like, created a totally independent board of directors to make it, if you like, more professional, have better business expertise, etc., and county directors have been excluded from the board. Two famously resigned a few years ago in protest of the direction of travel, but at county level themselves, you know, if I take my own county of, of Lancashire, Lancashire needed massive funding to renovate the stadium. The facilities were poor, and the facilities are now wonderful. There's, there's it's a lovely ground. It's not to everybody's taste. But people go there and think this is a really good major match ground. But in doing so, they stopped all the member elected committees and brought in independent board directors appointed through the then chairman. And it's become a little bit of a closed shop. If you want to be elected as a, a board member at Lancashire, you have to go through their nominations committee, which is a tightly controlled body of three people. They all have to agree that you're a suitable person to go forward. And in the last 10 years, there hasn't been a meaningful choice for Lancashire members to elect anybody to their board. Whenever there's a vacancy, the nominations committee has produced one person for the vacancy. They have the sort of elections Robert Mugabe has. Well, without the um, ethnic cleansing and the um, executions, yes. Um, but uh, I see what you mean. But do the members legally have control over the counties that they own? Well, they have the power to remove the board at every general meeting. There's an annual general meeting every year. And at that meeting, the county management and board gain approval from the, from the members um, to approve the strategy, to approve the reappointment of board directors. And all of those processes fundamentally contribute to electing the chairman. They're very different at different counties. Some, some clubs directly elect their chairman, some elect committees who then elect the chairman. So it varies by county to by county exactly how the members can control their club. But ultimately, yes, they do, Peter. If they are willing to be engaged and they're willing to take part in the votes, then they can have a large say. The role of the nominations committee, though, that has come in in most counties has concentrated power and appointment in a relatively small number of people. Um, there are exceptions, say Surrey. Uh, Surrey still has a general committee of 16 members, 
that are a member nominated and member elected. There's no nominations committee there. Anybody can stand and it's up to the members who they pick. And those 16 people on the general committee oversee Surrey's board, which does have a nominations committee and does ensure that it appoints the right type of skills and experiences to oversee the running of not only the cricket club, but also the considerable commercial activities that go on at Surrey, as they do at many other of the major match grounds. So it is possible to keep a strong member link and member involvement at a governance level, or you can go down the route of turning it into a very close shop and different counties are on the spectrum from the, the level of Surrey down to where it is at Lancashire where quite simply, very few members even bother to volunteer to offer to help out now. The club secretary, if he was here, said, well, look, Alan, we haven't had anybody volunteer for, since I've been here. But in doing so, in the way they've gone about it, I think they've effectively sent a signal out to members, you're not welcome here. And I've heard through the, through the campaigning at different counties, when I've spoken to members at different counties, that this is a common feature. Yes, you can go along to have a chat with the people who are on the nominations committee, and they'll tell you they don't really feel your face fits in around here, or what you're thinking isn't really in tune with the rest of the, 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 the board. So it probably wouldn't work very well for you to come on board. So at some stages, it's just a nudge away. And on others, it's a, well, you only get here if we like the cut of your jib. Yeah. Can I get, so just to remind everybody listening why this conversation is taking place. There is English cricket in the view, in the eyes of many, including me, is under sort of mortal threat in terms of the first class game, the four day county matches, and therefore, knocking on onto the test matches because players uh, doing a sort of, um, you know, they're playing the 100 or something, they're not learning how to play a test cricket. Meanwhile, the counties themselves have been massively compromised in their ability to provide high-quality cricket to, to to their spectators because of the, the restructuring of the game, which is uh, now underway. And that is why we're talking about this governance issue uh, and why it actually is about the future of the game itself and why your role we see as being enormously important in, in, in sort of bringing to public attention and rallying against what feels to me like a, a, a takeover of the game um, uh, by a very small, uh, to use the, the jargon term, neoliberal elite, which has got interests completely separate, sees, sees cricket about making money, and not at the other way around. So tell us about the your new county cricket members group. What are its aims? Can anyone join it? Yes, anybody can join it. And it's evolved naturally from the campaign that we launched in the summer, which was principally focused on raising awareness of the issue that first-class cricket was under the threat that you've described. We very quickly, um, through the support of organisations like the Lancashire Action Group, who were very helpful in sharing their website and campaigning with leaflets, we very quickly got national support across all of the counties. Over 6,000 people have signed up. There hasn't been any great media coverage of it to, to publicise it, so it's all been word of mouth and social media and volunteers going around county grounds handing out leaflets to cricket fans there to say, look, this exists, you can have a voice, you can have a say. And Peter, I think 
one thing I must emphasize at the start is so many cricket fans just feel downtrodden by the authorities over years of refusing to listen to cricket supporters' views, not reacting to any of the criticisms that are leveled, that people have just almost given up trying. People say, well, of course, Alan, you're right, but what's the point? They'll never listen to us. So it is important to bring people together in a group because as individuals, we feel weak and powerless and unable to have our voice heard. But as a group, we feel much more empowered, much stronger, and it's harder to ignore us. So the County Cricket Members Group is intended to formalize the representation of county cricket fans. Now, members are important because they have votes, as we've just discussed at the clubs, but also one of the key aims, I mean, the, the, the purpose of this group is to help county cricket thrive. And a key goal for that is to improve the number of members. And the most obvious place to increase the number of members are from the county cricket supporters, the dedicated cricket fans. Many of them will have been members at some point left, uh, you know, in protest at the way their clubs have treated them. What we want to do is improve satisfaction of, of, amongst members and spectators going to these grounds so more people will join, people will rejoin, and then more members will volunteer to help their club. It's no good just moaning at the bosses because many of them are cricket lovers themselves. They are, in many cases, trying to do the right thing for them, themselves, but they're unpaid, they're unpaid volunteers, and they will probably feel a lot of the challenge we've been pushing at them is unfair. All of those uh, objectives are absolutely commendable and vital because what I think we're seeing here in cricket, as we see across the, in so many different areas of, of Britain now, is an attack on what you might call the, the public domain, what the philosopher Mark Wand called the public domain and, and civil society uh, by a very narrow elite. Uh, and that brings us, doesn't it, to what Andrew Strauss ha ha has been doing. Could you summarise for our listeners who haven't been paying attention, such as people like me? And particularly our, our overseas ones who may not be following this quite as closely as, as us in England. Yeah, can you just summarise for us quickly, Alan, what, what's at stake in, um, in Andrew Strauss's blueprint for cricket? And why, is, it, um, why are the, is the forthcoming vote on parts of it so important for the future of English cricket? Well, briefly, the, the background to Strauss's high performance review, it came out of a disastrous Ashes tour, which most people could see was coming anyway. It, it provided the basis to have a total relook at many aspects of how English cricket is managed. And he has a panel of independent outside experts. He's come up with a whole set of recommendations. There's 17 in total. Many of them are sensible. Quite a few are dubious. A lot could be really well debated. Um, but they've been presented and accepted by the ECB board, and now it's up to the counties. Now, why is it up to the counties? It's because there are two of the 17 recommendations that the counties have to approve. The other 15, the ECB can just implement because they largely feature um, in English cricket. But two are the structure of the county cricket setup, how the divisions work, and the, the second one is the scheduling. And it's in those recommendations that significant pressure is going to be brought to the bird on the counties to agree. And in your words, Peter, I do agree with you. I think they do pose a mortal threat to county cricket as we know it. So to briefly summarize what they are, they want to reduce the amount of county cricket that's played. That's the first thing. 
And the biggest reduction is going to be felt by, by the first class game to move from 14 games a year to 10. It was only six, it was reduced from 16 to 14 only recently. So this is a dramatic reduction. If you're a county cricket fan and you pay your membership subscriptions, you're now faced with only five home games being scheduled, unless if the weather intervenes, of course. And then secondly, they want to make the divisions small. They want a top division of six teams so that supposedly the best teams play the best teams. And the other 12 county teams go into two feeder divisions of six and the winners of each would then fight for one place at the top table. And the real problem with that is, is it's going to slowly strangle, I would say, six to eight counties out of existence within a very short space of time as members leave their clubs. Membership has been in decline in any case. Um, they will continue to leave if there is less cricket for them to watch and pay for. So this is a blueprint for the shrinking of the domestic game down to an elite of maybe eight to 10 teams. And that's the main concern. Can you just explain one thing which won't be obvious to many people who love cricket? Why this need to shrink the number of games? Well, the, the thought process that English cricket would be stronger, that we would have a stronger national team if we had smaller numbers of clubs playing against each other more often is not new. Reforms of this nature have been mooted many, many times before, going back many years. The, the theory is that if you concentrate your elite resources in a small number of teams and they play each other all the time, then standards will improve you'll have people wanting to get into those elite teams. And then when they get into the elite teams, they will play the best against the best more often. And that will result in better players. I see. You hear comparisons from time to time with the Sheffield Shield, which um, and the strength it provides to Australian cricket. Um, Sheffield Shield has a very limited number of matches and they're very tightly contested and Competition to get into Sheffield Shield teams is, is pretty intense, but uh, that's underpinned by a system of grade cricket, a very, very good pipeline into first-class cricket of a very high standard in Australian cricket, which is something we don't have in English cricket, do we? We don't have the equivalent of grade cricket. Well, we, we do have strong league clubs, and they're, they're spread all across the country. And the important difference between... England and Australia, you know, it's geography and demographics. Um, Australia, they have most of their population around their six major cities. I think it's about 80% of their population lives in that conurbation. In the UK, 80% of the population is spread out around the outside of the major cities. And the shires and the counties have got long traditions of playing very strong and very competitively cricket. Now, where I think there's room for real improvement is to make sure that the counties have better links to their local leagues and to their local clubs, be it through developing juniors, be it through talent identification and bringing people through. If we shrink the centre of excellence down to the major cities, you know, how are the top players from, you know, Cornwall and Devon, whether it's Marcus Truscothic and the Overtons, are they going to really travel all the way up to say, let's say Bristol is given the, the centre for the South West in the new world? I think doors will close. I think fewer people will come through the system and make it through to the top. 
So I think we should build and improve on the county system. And there's no doubt that valid criticism can be leveled at how county cricket has run itself over the last 20 years. Improvements can be made so that people from all over the country, particularly as we're doing a lot of work around making cricket more accessible to different communities, so those people have easier entry points into the professional game. I think there's a great risk at shrinking them down. I think that would be a strategic error. Now, Andy, when we interviewed uh, Andy Nash on this podcast, who, as you know, was he resigned from the ECB and he had been chairman of, of Somerset, he was making he was so eloquent on this point that the new structure will basically eliminate Somerset from uh, first-class cricket, from proper cricket, uh, or the top level of cricket. And, and on that, Somerset is all the way from Cornwall to, to West Wiltshire. And so that is and up to Bristol. And, the, and that what, that's devastating. The whole civic infrastructure of the game, which has existed for over 100 years and brought everybody, um, wonderful players, you know, like Triscopic and Butler into the game, that goes. And how, how is that compatible with uh, Mr. Strauss's apparent apparent, one should say, objective of, uh, of improving high-performance cricket. Sir Andrew Strauss. Oh, sorry, I should have knighted him, yes. Yes. So I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, it's a classic business dilemma. When you're running a business, as I've done many times, is you always want more customers, you want new customers. And what I think the ECB are doing is, you know, they're tapping into some probably reliable research that says there's a whole market of new cricket supporters out there that aren't being reached for whatever reason. And um, they're all based around the big cities. So they're trying to go after those. And that's wonderful. We want more people coming to watch the game. But in trying to create a new city identity for these teams, um, they are going to undermine existing cricket support because across the reach of the counties is also the tradition. And it's in people's bone marrow that they support a county. So if you focus, say, on Manchester as a big city, you will alienate almost everybody in Lancashire and the historic county of Lancashire. You know, you won't get people from Liverpool or Birkenhead supporting a Manchester team. You'll get people from Preston or Blackpool supporting a Manchester mm. team. So you will really undermine it. I think yep. we need to build on what we already have and we need to get more people from outside the traditional county supporter base, which can arguably be said is too white and too middle class but we need to build on the existing county structures and bring these new supporters into that yeah it's very um, jonathan collett when we had him on a few um months ago was saying you know look birmingham the franchise from you know, the hundred is about a franchise it's something called the Bar birmingham bears and that's completely independent from um uh, from Warwickshire, which is the traditional structure which dates back to the 19th century, and um, it, it alienates everybody apart from a few people in Birmingham, which is the big conurbation. Yeah, that's, I, I understand that, but you know, Birmingham's a big city, it's got a million people, and probably a lot of those people don't really know about Warwickshire either as a, an, a in ancient county mm. and with all its traditions. So we don't want to be divisive here. We don't want to set one group of particular, you know, cricket fan against another. Uh, we want to bring everybody together. And I think it's best done in a consensual and gradual manner. And I think the city-based um, competition of the 100 looks to me as a sort of business person from the outside as a, a, a serious takeover attempt. 
It's an attempt by the ECB to control and own elite professional sports. So the, the likely survivors out of all of this are going to be the major match ground counties that have... Yeah, tell, tell us which counties will will lose out. That's really well, interesting. Presumably the ones where, which are sent with, presumably the ones which are not uh, staging 100 matches. Is that right? Yeah. So you, the, the major match grounds are the traditional test match venues of in London, Lords and the Oval in, in the north, uh, Old Trafford at Lancashire, Headingley, uh, Leeds at Yorkshire. You've then got coming down to the Midlands, um, Warwickshire, Edgbaston at Birmingham, Nottinghamshire, Trent Bridge at Nottingham. And then you've got the other major match grounds that are hosting 100 matches. So you've um, the Hampshire's ground owned by Rod Bransgrove, which hosts a franchise team. And you've also got Glamorgan hosting the, the Welsh Fire franchise team. So those eight major match ground 100 venues are, the, are, are likely to be the big winners. There may be more franchise teams created. Um, I'm hearing a lot of talk, um, I think much of it quite reliable, that in order to get the necessary 12 out of 18 votes to put reforms through, that the ECB is quite willing and interested to extend the number of franchises. It's possible that um, Somerset and Gloucestershire may be asked to share a franchise in the Southwest, splitting their time between Taunton and Bristol. Uh, it may be that there's one in the northeast um, for, for, for Durham, so that they aren't all having to come down to um, Leeds for their major matches. So I can see a future where the ECB expand the franchises to maybe 10, possibly even as many as 12, and the number of counties shrink down from 18 to 10 to 12 and obviously the ones that are most danger of shrieking are the ones that don't get involved with these major matches now there's one further step that then really does worry me and the new ecb chairman who was previously very skeptical in public speeches about the hundred now he is the new ecb chairman is saying well we all have to learn to love the hundred and get behind it and and grow it and he has said it is inevitable that this will be sold to private equity. And what that means is that the ECB is going to look to generate millions and millions of pounds from a sale of some or all of the stakeholdings in these franchises. And once these are owned effectively by billionaires, you've got billionaires owning 10 or 12 franchises and you've got say 12 counties still remaining that are member owned that are trying to survive and thrive alongside it. There really is only going to be one winner in that situation. And although I don't think um, people in Lancashire need to worry that there won't be major domestic cricket matches played at Manchester anymore, I do think the likelihood of Lancashire County Cricket Club being the identity under which they're played and under their member ownership, I think that prospect will be very, very low indeed in, a, in as little as five or ten years' time. So what really is at threat is the ownership, control and identity of English domestic cricket. And it is for that reason that thousands of us who have been campaigning on this, this is, this is a hill we're prepared to die on. So basically all the ancient civic structure of English uh, and Welsh cricket is going to be destroyed, uh, wiped out and replaced by a franchise system owned by the equivalents of, um, you know, the Glaziers who own Manchester United or um, 
or the, the various uh, kind of owners, you'll probably get a bit of UAE, won't you? You'll get a bit of that sort of thing. Um, uh, yeah, uh, the Emirates uh, will have a cricket team. Um, um, and then it, ne it is utter it's neoliberal economics wiping out the ancient sort of public bodies and public arrangements, cooperative arrangements, which we've had in English cricket for um, over 100 years. Now, this is a real metaphor for... Um, disaster capitalism, isn't it? Which, and it's, you can't help but bring to mind the comparison with this Conservative government, where the Conservative Party was just purchased wholesale, really, by a small number of super rich donors, and then they, it's been put to work kind of, uh, helping the super rich and, and attacking the poor. Well, I don't, I don't think it has to be one or the other in terms of, you know, having... Um, small number of clubs owned by very wealthy people with the pursuit of profits being the, the main aim. And if you like, very amateurish, voluntary clubs stumbling along and making errors and not maximising participation. I think there's many examples. I and mean, we borrow one from the world of football. If you look at the Bundesliga and the German football clubs, they are member-owned clubs and they run successful commercial businesses alongside them and they produce excellent world-class players, um, both at their domestic teams and, and, and nationally. So it is perfectly possible for English cricket to organise itself, to maximise the talents and abilities of cricket enthusiasts, and there are thousands of them with skills and expertise, to run these clubs successfully, both on the pitch, through talent programmes, and to create successful events-based businesses that build on the loyalty and affection of the local community to go and have a night out at their local cricket club for businesses to entertain and have conferences there. All of that is possible without losing the golden thread of what's underneath it, that these community-based cricket clubs matter. They matter in our bone marrow to thousands and thousands of people they may not go to the cricket matches because they're scheduled on a Monday to Thursday when people are working, so they can't go. But tens of thousands of people are watching them online and more people would get involved if they were made to feel more welcome. So I think it, it is time now to have a group of motivated members and cricket supporters who can see the issues, to stop sitting on the sidelines and moaning and complaining about it and to take some constructive action with the best interests of the game at heart and to work with the existing cricket management. As I said earlier, that many of them are all cricket lovers themselves. They want to do this. They're short of volunteers. They're short of help themselves. So the key aim for our county cricket members group is to motivate and empower volunteer members to get involved and to make a difference and to take the best practices that we see from the outside world or outside other sports to make our cricket clubs a success. It's a great vision, Alan, but the present ECB and the present iPerformance Review, if it goes through, are not, very specifically, not going to create a Bundesliga for cricket, for English cricket, are they? They're going to create a franchise-based system uh, with, as you suggest, a very, very fragile surviving number of member-run counties. And um, the counties that do survive, it seems to me, are going to be clients very much of the, of the ECB. They're not going to be controllers of the ECB as they, they, sh they should be in its present Articles of Association. They're basically clients that are going to be dependent on the allocation of matches and resources from the ECB. 
how do we get to if, as I say, if the present proposals go through? That's it seems to me the future that is going to be. How do we get that alternative future in the present governance of English cricket? Do you have any ideas that could make um, English cricket more formally responsive to its supporters and participants? Well, an awful lot's going to depend on the new ECB chairman. Um, he's going to instigate a significant review of the ECB and its operations. It's probably going to have to cut considerable costs, so, so some important decisions on priorities are going to have to be made. We're also going to have the report in equity that you alluded to earlier coming out. That's not going to make pretty reading because quite probably there's been an awful lot of poor behaviour that's gone on. It'll have gone on in the ECB and it will have gone on across the counties. And we're going to have to listen and we're going to have to learn and we're going to have to improve as a result. So I think the onus really is on people who want to make a difference to get involved. So I think this is a bottom-up revolution, a bottom-up reformation, um, and done in a consensual way. So we need more people getting involved within their counties, improving their counties, volunteering. We can spend more money on players, on player development, on player pathways, if we're spending less money on administrators and on administrator salaries and bonuses. I'd like to put cricket first and profit second. We need money to do this, but we don't need to do, we don't need to maximize cricket to make as much money as possible. And it's within that ethos. Is there a shared ethos that can link county and cricket supporters nationally with the people who run it? So over the coming year or two, in the run-up to the new county participation agreement that has to be agreed between the ECB and the counties in by 2025, we need to have a constructive debate. And the counties own the ECB. The 18 counties together control them. So when the ECB gives out money to them, much like the government gives us money to us, it's not their money they're giving us, it's our money they're giving to us. They are the decision makers. So it is up to cricket fans, nationally through their county members membership or outside to ensure that cricket is run properly uh, and that's the way I, I see it happening is through the counties the ECB will be reshaped in its governance and in its priorities and we'll need to come together and work out how that can be best done because there's a lot of good that's in there to be built on I don't want to decry everything that's happening either at county level or at the ECB but I think there's been a narrow group of people in charge of both areas for too long. And we need to broaden the involvement of people and make use of their talents and stop power being concentrated in too small a group of people. The, um, the House Commons Select Committee on Culture, Media and Sport uh, very much took the ECB to task over its um, approach uh, to racism in cricket uh, and intervened quite powerfully. Would you like to see politicians take more interest in the governance of English cricket and its future, or would you like them to stay at arm's length, as basically they've it's been the pattern so far? Well, you know, cricket is regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority already. Fifteen of them are mutuals. They file their returns there. You know, regulation has very limited impact on cricket. And... I, and my own experiences in financial services, I've spent 30 years in the world of pensions and life insurance, 
fixing all manner of scandals and disasters that have occurred there. And they've occurred despite there being regulation, despite there being strong government oversight and constant changes in rules and regulations. So I'm very cautious about government and regulatory involvement in cricket. I think be careful what you wish for. Mm. I mean, if we look at what, what happened in football on the SL, the, the government mandated a fan-led review. And I thought that was a good idea. And indeed, a senior director of the England Wales Cricket Board sat on that fan-led review of football. I'd like to see a, a fan-led review of cricket, but rather than the government impose it on the game, why can't the ECB have a fan-led review? Why can't fans be involved? Instead of the tokenism, uh, and quite frankly, deceit that's happened this time around. We were promised that fans would be involved in, in, in this review, but where has been the fan involvement voluntarily from the cricket authorities? We've had a big say because we've chosen to have a big say and we've campaigned from outside the structures. But as far as I can see, the only involvement that the cricket authorities have voluntarily done is to take the results of the Cricket Supporters Association survey into account somehow. Well, let's just look at the facts here. That survey, which I had some involvement in creating, that survey closed on the 24th of August. So the last review, the last inputs from cricket supporters came in on the 24th. And Andrew Strauss and the team at the ECB published initial recommendations on the 25th of August for consultation amongst the counties. So there's no way any of those inputs had any effect on Strauss's committee's recommendations. And since then, nothing much has changed either. So instead of having an offering tokenism to cricket fans, I think the game needs to be open to having a better conversation with the people who love the game and also fund it. You know, it's not just the memberships, it's not just the ticket purchases, it's the cricket TV subscriptions. We all pay for the game and we have virtually no say or influence in how it's run. And that is what has to change. I mean, I've learned so much from this conversation and it's so profound about the history of the game that we love and so many people love. And I'm just going to summarise what we've learned from you today. So one, the ECB, um, the English Cricket Board, plans to reduce the amount of county cricket from 14 games already reduced to 10, 10 first class games a year, it used to be 30 or so. Two, shrinking the top division to six teams, basically meaning that quite a lot of the counties will vanish. Um, C, and I think this is the one we haven't talked about quite enough, but we have, we're running out of time, preserving the 100, which becomes the sort of elephant in the room here, doesn't it? It, turns, it, it takes over August, the top, the top month for, for cricket, and that will be a vehicle for franchise teams the, the Emirates, what they were, whatever they're called, or or, or some sort of um, funny names backed by by private equity money, taking over the whole structure of cricket and eventually becoming the structure of cricket, and then those franchises are to be sold uh, to private equity. Now, and crucially, these these changes have not been properly debated. The ECB has been, to use your term, deceitful. Certainly. Uh, uh, very secretive about what they're doing. Uh, it, it, the rest of us haven't been consulted. And actually another subject which we haven't discussed is, as you, you said in this conversation, the media, uh, you don't read about it much in the media. And that, of course, is because so many 
of the journalists uh, and the former players involved in this uh, conversation are somehow linked to the BBC, which is backing the new structures, or Sky, which is also the other half of the broadcasting deal. So it's basically taking, taking in, in on, against the background of media silence bordering on uh, complicity and official secrecy bordering on deceit, we're having the biggest and most fundamental change to the nature of cricket as practiced in this country, really since the days uh, before WG Grace. Is that a fair summary of what's going on? Yeah, and the 100 is the elephant in the room, as you quite rightly say. And by excluding the 100 and its role from this high performance review, it fatally undermines the integrity and impartiality of that mm. review. So I think we need to build on what Strauss has done, because there's much in there that's good. And I think over the next year, we need to have a broader base review. And that does include looking at the 100 and its role, both now and in the future. And let's be honest about what, where we want the 100 to go and what we want the 100 to do. You know, if we want to be the top in all of these international formats, why are we focusing so much time on playing a format nobody else plays, for example? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Elephant in the room, I can't resist uh, the description of the 100 as the fishbone in the throat of English cricket. And, of so, course, people uh, die of fish bones in the throat. That well, can be fatal. Uh, that's, yes, we, some think that the 100 might be fatal for English cricket. But, uh, well, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be its saviour and its, its growth. It's supposed to provide a little bit of insurance against the global franchise team trend. You know, players are going to go and play more of the year around the world for global franchise teams. The English game will lose high quality players to that because of simple market forces. But that's even more of a reason not to shrink the game. We are not going to produce better players or more players by shrinking the domestic game. And we should make sure that we spend the money wisely that we gain from giving access to these global franchise teams on making sure that we have a strong and thriving domestic game particularly for first-class cricket, because fashions come and fashions go. So at the moment, T20 white ball, there's a lot of money for that. There's a lot of support for that. But it's a bit like eating a packet of crisps. It's kind of enjoyable at the time, but very soon forgotten. It's not like a high-quality meal. And bad for you in the long run. Well, very, sim very symbolically, the 100 is, is sponsored by crisp firms, isn't it? Um, yeah, by junk foods giving short-term satisfaction. Yep. So what I think about the 100 is we need to hold the review. It has to be in the review because it needs to be held to account. Is it really bringing in new audiences or is it largely cannibalising an existent audience? We don't know for sure about that. We don't want just spin uh, to, to go on. And then secondly, it was meant to be helping people get more involved in cricket. So are participation levels going up because of the 100? Is there any direct link? I can't see how if you go to a 100 match that you're being signposted or pointed to either go and play at your local count club or go and support your um, local county. Um, none of those things seem to me to be happening. And indeed, the people who run the 100 communication channels seem to be doing so in a quite a divisive way. So last season, at the end of the first season, they said, oh, well, what shall we do now when the now the 100's finished? There's like nothing left. There was no idea of, well, you know, there's four, four weeks of really exciting finish to the county cricket. Go and watch some of those. 
you know, arguably, if you want to use the 100 as an inspiration to get people involved in cricket, they should play it at the beginning of the year. It should be played at the beginning of the season. And then there's a whole host of other things for people mm. to go on to. You can go on and play cricket at your local club. If you're a young person, you've been to your, that's your first taste of cricket and you want to play it. So doing it at the end of August and then saying, well, there's, you know, see you next year in August for more of the same and almost pretending that there's no other form of cricket that exists is really poor. And it goes against what the ECB promised the 100 would, would do. So I think the 100 needs to be in the review. Uh, we need to build on the positive things that it has done, for, particularly for the women's game. And I do think it will have brought in new people. But are those new people then... Uh, going on to support and participate in, in, in their counties. Those are the questions that the review should ask. Do we know when the critical vote is, is, is taking place on the blueprint yet? Is a date fixed for that? No, there's no official date. And it's going. I think there's a strong desire to resolve all these issues one way or the other before the end of November so that counties can begin their plans for next season, knowing what they're playing for. If there's going to make changes in 2024, what are they? Because those things will be at stake during the 2023 season. So I think there's a strong desire to do it by the end of November, but there is no formal date. And that brings me on to just one last point, if I may, is all of these discussions are now going to be held by the county chiefs with the ECB over the next two months. There's not easily going to be participation for cricket fans in that because they won't be going to the cricket grounds anyway. Only the very hardy and determined will go along to any consultation meetings in the middle of November or October when everybody's worried about their heating bills. So I think it's really important that the cricket bosses don't take advantage of the unfortunate timings of all of this and make sure that they make it as easy for cricket members to get involved. So these sessions must be online and they must be meaningful. And lastly, an appeal, please sign up to this campaign. You, you know, you can leave your email address so we can contact you if necessary. If we need to mobilize people during the winter, we will need email addresses. So please sign up to the campaign to save first class cricket. You can do so through the County Cricket Matters website and we will keep you in touch with developments. Alan, a uh, very, very challenging set of ideas uh, and arguments you've put to us. We've um, been inviting the ECB to send a representative onto the podcast for months and months. We repeat that invitation now. We'd be delighted to um, talk about the blueprint, about the whole future of English cricket uh, with them. But... Um, for now, we must thank you for an extraordinarily stimulating conversation and um, let's hope for the best for English cricket. We will uh, do our best to keep our listeners, those who follow us, in, in touch of what you're doing. I think we ought to have you back fairly soon to update us on what is going on in these backdoors discussions and make sure that they are illuminated for all cricket lovers around the country. I've been absolutely gripped by your conversation. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much, Peter and Richard, for having me on your podcast. It's been wonderful to talk to you and a good opportunity to put the views of many thousands of county cricket fans across the country who all want to get involved and do more to help grow this game of ours. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast, um, Alan, and um, we may very well have you back for a second innings. 
Uh, for now, though, it's uh, goodbye from Richard Heller. It's um, a little less pleasant here in southeast London. It's even more beautiful here in Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Peter Oval. Thank you.